Everybody loves the touchdown. Throws to the back of the end zone, and it is touchdown by Holmes. The grand slam. Fly ball to center field. Ethier has done it again. It's a grand slam. The buzzer beater. Gets it to LeBron for three for the win. But how did those players get to that moment? And who built the venue and signed the contracts? Each week, we dig into the business side of sports and give you the answers. This is Sports Business Radio. Come on, boy, boy, can you get it up? Now, from our studios in Portland, Oregon, with Sports Business Radio, here's your host, Brian Berger. Well, thanks for checking out the only show in the country dedicated to covering the business side of sports. Glad you could join us this week. In our next segment, we'll have our Sports Business Radio Headlines of the Week sponsored by the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon. Several people find themselves in trouble this week. Athletes, executives, we'll let you know who's in hot water. That's coming up in our next segment. In segments three and four, great conversation with Hollywood screenwriter Mike Rich. Mike has written numerous movies, Finding Forrester, Radio, The Rookie, And now his latest movie is Secretariat in theaters October 8th. It's a Disney film. There has not been a movie done on the life and times of Triple Crown winner Secretariat. It's a great movie, great story. If you really want to learn about movie making and how this particular film got made. Great conversation with Mike Rich. I invite you to stay tuned for that coming up in segments three and four of today's show. A couple of other notes. Visit my Sports Business blog or download the SBR podcast on demand. Just go to sportsbusinessradio.com. You can become our Facebook friend or follow us on Twitter. Look for the icons on the homepage of sportsbusinessradio.com, and you can find those items there. Joined in studio by executive producer Brian Griggs. Griggs, uh, lots of people find Finding themselves in trouble this week, another cyclist finds himself in trouble. And I love his excuse, which we'll get to in our next segment. It seems like the the excuses from athletes get better and better every week. Yeah, it does. You know, and it's it's so much more publicized now, too, with the Twitter and the Facebook and everything. When somebody, I mean, it, it breaks and it's just like the whole world knows. And the guy is just buried. It's another black eye. For cycling, So we'll talk about that. And then some executives, some really smart people said some things that cost them a little bit of money this week. We'll tell you who those people are. And again, conversation with Mike Rich, Hollywood screenwriter. He wrote Secretariat. It's in theaters October 8th. That conversation coming up in segments three and four. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. This is SBR. Back with more after this. This is Brian Berger from Sports Business Radio. I know many of our listeners dream of a job in the sports industry but don't know where to begin. To me, it's an easy call. Go where sports business education got its start, at the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon. As the first business school in the country to offer undergraduate and graduate programs themed around this multi-billion dollar industry, the Warsaw Center offers a unique blend and strong general business training. Sports business curriculum taught by industry experts and rich out-of-classroom experiences, including real-world consulting projects, study tours, and internships. With a strong industry and alumni network and a staff dedicated to accelerating your career, the Warsaw Center has a proven track record of placing students in teams, league offices, corporate sponsors, marketing agencies, sports media, and sports shoe and apparel firms. But like any elite team, there's only a few spots on the roster. To learn more, visit sportsbusinessradio.com for a link to the center's website. The Warsaw Sports Marketing Center. Passion, integrity, and leadership in sports business education. 
It's time, baby. Special news bulletin. At Sports Business Radio, we're always on top of what's happening in the world of sports. And each week, we break down the stories you need to know about. This is Headlines. I want to be in the headlines. On Sports Business Radio. Sports Business Radio. It's time for this week's Sports Business Radio headline, sponsored by the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon. Visit WarsawCenter.com for more information. Headline number one, the NCAA has a new president. It's University of Washington Chancellor and President Mark Emmert. He, this week, ended his six-and-a-half-year tenure at the university. He's going to formally begin as the NCAA president on Tuesday. You may remember that Dr. Miles Brand passed away. He had cancer, so that just Job has been vacant, and Mark Emmert is going to step into those big shoes. Dr. Brand did a really nice job, and uh, we're going to try and get Mark Emmert on this show in the not-too-distant future. Our next headline, three-time Tour de France champion Alberto Contador has blamed contaminated meat Thursday for his positive doping test during this year's race, the latest blow to a sport battered by drug scandals. The Spanish writer has been provisionally suspended after a World Anti-Doping Agency lab in Germany found a very small concentration of the banned substance clenbuterol in his urine sample on July 21st at the Tour. This according to a statement from the cycling governing body UCI. It's a clear case of food contamination. Contador told a news conference in his hometown near Madrid, I am sad and disappointed, but hold my head high. Contador could be suspended two years if found guilty. And Griggs, again, you know, a sport that's been marred by these drug scandals with sponsors. At what point do we not even believe that anyone, any anything anyone is doing is real on these cycles? Yeah, it's just, it's crazy. And I love the excuses they come with, with too, you know. Oh, it's, it's food poisoning. It's uh, something in the food. I mean, come on, guys. I mean, Obviously, they're, they're trying to cover something up, and uh, it's not working. Everybody knows about it. It's too late. Our next headline, Game 3 of the World Series this year is scheduled to start at 6.57 p.m. Eastern Time. That's the earliest start for a World Series game in 23 years. It's an hour earlier than 2009. I like this, Griggs. I've been beating the drum for a few years. You know, the kiddos go to sleep early, and when you're starting primetime games at 10 o'clock, Eastern time, that just doesn't work. Kids can't watch the game. So now by starting them a little earlier, it allows kids and the younger fans to watch the Fall Classic. I like this move. Yeah, I do too. And I remember even when I was a kid, it was like special if I got to stay up late and watch a ball game. You know, it was like, oh, wow, I get to see a game. And now everybody's going to be able to see it. It's great. Our next headline, new Washington Wizards owner Ted Leonsis. He's been a guest on this show. He was fined $100,000 this week, chump change to him, for saying... NBA owners are looking to implement a hard salary cap like the one that is in place in the NHL. Guess what? Commissioner David Stern did not like this at all. Here's his response to Leontes's comments. We're negotiating, and that was one of our negotiating points, Stern told the AP. But collective bargaining is a negotiating process, and that was not something that Ted was authorized to say, and he will be dealt with for that lapse in judgment. Ouch! So, for those keeping track, Leonsis was fined faster than any owner in NBA history. He's only been the owner of the Wizards, the majority owner, for 112 days. The previous record, 
Mark Cuban was fined after his first 315 days. Griggs, you don't mess with Commissioner Stern. And uh, Leontes spoke out of school, hundred grand. That's the fine. Yeah, and you never want to hear uh, Commissioner Stern say, you'll be dealt with. It's like your dad, you know, when dad gets home, you're going to be dealt with. For that lapse in judgment. Yeah, I, I'm sure, you know, if you can get called into the principal's office, Principal Stern's office, it is not fun at all. Now, here's another guest on Sports Business Radio, very bright man, just like Ted Leonsis, who also spoke and I guess uh, didn't realize what he was saying. Indianapolis Colts president Bill Polian said he was very imprecise when he described an 18-game schedule as a done deal. Two days after saying a longer schedule is a fait accompli on his local radio show, Polian returned to the airwaves to clarify that he meant that the Colts are preparing as if there could be an 18-game schedule. Now, on Tuesday, the NFL Players Association representatives and league officials met in Washington to discuss a new collective bargaining agreement. The expanded session was one of those topics. Polian explained that the competition committee, which he serves on, is still discussing how to make it work. A proposal would still have to be discussed with the union and approved by league owners. You know, Griggs, just like we talked with Charles Robinson from Yahoo Sports a few weeks ago, an 18-game schedule may be the only thing that prevents a work stoppage because with 18 games the owners can generate more revenue to continue to pay the players what they want to be paid without an 18 game regular season schedule i'm not sure that we won't have a a lengthy work stoppage when the collective bargaining agreement expires yeah i think uh, i agree with that and also when it's professional sports especially nfl nba saying the words done deal before it's actually done not good and you know that that of course broke the second that went out everybody heard that, and then it's like, ah, wait, I didn't hear that yet. And if Polian was fined, we haven't heard about it, so NFL Commissioner Goodell may have scolded Polian, but uh, if he did so, he's done it in private, and it hasn't made the, uh, the media rounds yet. Our next headline, the Tampa Bay Rays, who I think have the worst fans in all of sports, in 90 minutes distributed 20,000 free tickets on Wednesday. That means... They sold out. So people began lining up by the hundreds well before the box office opened at 4.45 p.m. Eastern time. And fans said this should be an indicator that the community supports the Rays, but that people are hurting financially. They can't always afford to attend. At the clinching game for the playoffs for the Rays, 17,000 people in the stands. I can see why Stuart Sternberg is going to slash payroll by $20 million at the end of the season. He's put a great product out on the field, one of the best records in Major League Baseball, and 17,000 fans come to the game unless you hand out 20,000 free tickets. Really poor support in Tampa. Yeah, it's a mess over there. And, and the plaid hats, I don't think, really helped. It felt like there should have been bagpipers out at the uh, the Diamond doing some playing before game because it just it felt weird to me watching that game with the, the plaid hats on. Speaking of weird, this is one of the strangest headlines we've had in a long time, and it's our last headline of the week. Charity-minded callers are getting intercepted by a sex phone line because of a misprint on Cincinnati Bengals wide receiver Chad Ochocinco's namesake cereal boxes. The phone number is supposed to connect callers to Feed the Children, which benefits from sales of Ochocinco's, the new cereal. But because the box has the wrong toll-free prefix, they got a seductive-sounding woman who makes risque suggestions and then asks for a credit card number. 
Cincinnati-based Kroger Company said Thursday it's pulling all Ocho Cinco cereal boxes from its grocery shelves because of the error. Some local stores had them on special display after the launch about a month ago. Griggs, what an embarrassment. And this just goes to show all of us, you better check and double check before something goes to print. Because if you print something like this, the wrong prefix, and you're not getting feed the children but a sex line, it doesn't get much worse than that. Yeah, I mean, what a mix-up on that one. But you, you got to think, it couldn't happen to a better guy. I mean, Ojo Cinco, <laughs> he's probably sitting there like, okay, how can I tweet this out and make this huge for myself? Because uh, there's got to be ways he can spin off on this one. Well, and he's got his reality TV show, so I'd love to see like the reaction of Ocho Cinco when someone comes in and tells him, Ocho Cinco, this isn't Feed the Children. This is a risque sex line that's on the back of your cereal box. That must have been quite the reaction. Coming up next, Mike Rich, one of the hottest screenwriters in all of Hollywood. He's done Finding Forrester. He's done Radio. He's done The Rookie with Dennis Quaid. Now he's bringing us Secretariat, Disney's new movie. It's in theaters October 8th. If you want to know how this movie was made, because this story happened in 1973. It's taken all the way till today to be able to see the movie of Secretariat. And then also, how what goes into making a Hollywood movie? There's a lot that goes into it, a lot that I don't think most of us realize. We're going to break that down with Mike Rich coming up in our next two segments. Stick around for that conversation. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Podcast this show and any other past SBR episode at sportsbusinessradio.com. Back with more SBR after this. Hi, this is Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. It's no secret that we're battling a tough economy these days. It's more difficult than ever for companies to position their brand in a unique way and reach their target audience. Sports Business Radio can help you, though. Sports Business Radio is syndicated in markets nationwide. Our popular podcast is regularly rated in the top 100 business news podcasts on iTunes and has listeners around the world. But our radio network and podcast aren't the only places your company will receive exposure when you join our family of sponsors. We'll also give you exposure via sportsbusinessradio.com and at our new Sports Executive Speaker Series events, which feature a conversation with a key decision maker from the world of sports in front of a live audience. And best of all, we can expose your product to the big-name guests that appear on our show. We'd love to have you on our team. Please contact me at brian at sportsbusinessradio.com or at 503-701-2215 if you're interested in becoming a sponsor of Sports Business Radio. Back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. My guest is Mike Rich. He's a Hollywood screenwriter. He's written Finding Forrester, The Rookie Radio, and now Secretariat, which opens on October 8th. Mike, thanks so much for joining us on uh, Sports Business Radio. Hey, no problem, Brian. Always a pleasure. Let's start by talking about how you got into the business. It's an interesting story. I've heard you tell it before. It was not easy. You wrote the script for Finding Forrester. It was rejected by several Hollywood studios, but you persevered. And maybe tell us that story of how you got into the business. Yeah, it certainly is uh, the path less traveled, that's for sure. Um, you know, because I was working 
uh, up here in radio station in Portland, and uh, uh, you know there was there was a rule of thumb at the time in Hollywood that it was a young man's game, and I was in my late thirties at the time, and uh, you had to live in L.A., which I didn't. I lived up here in the Portland area and still do. Uh, so I had I had written this script for Finding Forrester, and while I knew it wasn't a, a perfect script by any means, I knew it was a it was a really strong story. And so I got some great advice uh, to enter it in a contest, and I entered it in the Nickel Fellowship competition, which the Academy sponsors every year, specifically for writers who've never sold a, a screenplay. And so I entered that uh, script for Finding Forrester back in 1998 and was fortunate enough to be one of the five fellowship-winning scripts that year. And uh, and then within just a few weeks after that, sold the script to Sony Pictures, and a lot of good things happened after that, which, uh, um, you know, you, you're, you're right when you say that up until that point I had sent it out to some studio executives and some production companies, but uh, just without any luck. So because it won this award, it had this seal of approval, so to speak, now people that weren't interested in it before are suddenly interested in it again. Is that how it worked? Yeah, that's how it works. And, and the, the irony is that, um, you know, I still, in, in the scrapbook that I put together of what happened over that year, uh, page one is the rejection letter that I got from Sony Pictures, uh, the same studio executive who bought the script, uh, you know, a few months later, uh, and it was the same script that she had read that she rejected, that uh, she uh, she then read a second time after after the Nickel Fellowship competition and purchased. That's so funny. Mike, you know, I want to go inside your process. I think it's a fascinating process. Generally, how long does it take to write from the original draft of the script from start to finish? You know, for a first draft, Brian, it usually takes me anywhere from four to six months, depending on the level of research. The writing period, though, is actually can be quite short. It can be two to three months for, for a first draft. Most screenplays are, on average, about 120 pages in length. Uh, a minute on the screen is one page in a script. Uh, so it's the it's the thinking and preparing and brainstorming and researching that a lot of time, a lot of times takes up the uh, the lion's share of the time. The writing can be uh, can be relatively short. Well, in the writing, I imagine you've got to have a lot of discipline to kind of lock yourself in a room and devote a certain amount of time per day to write. How many hours a day do you find yourself writing? You know, about five hours, four to five hours, and during those four to five hours, I have to really make a point of. The phone goes off, the internet goes off, everything goes off that can, can serve as a potential distraction uh, because, you know, once you hopefully get that, that momentum going at the start of a day, those five, four or five hours can go by in what seems like 20 to 30 minutes. And uh, so anything that gets in the way of that can, can really be a distraction to, uh, to getting those necessary pages done. And I mentioned that a script is usually about 120 pages long. Uh, you know, I usually write five days a week. I write Monday through through Friday. And, uh, you know, if you just write three pages a day, well, that's 15 pages a week, that's 60 pages a month, and you're done in two months. And do you write from start to finish, or do you hop around and say, I'm going to do this scene, and maybe it's in the middle, and then I'm going to go back to the beginning of the movie, and then I'll go to the end? Or do you write in chronological order as we see it on the screen? 
lot of writers said, uh, you know, do it piecemeal and, and hop around, but I'm not one of those. And uh, it's not to say I'm right and they're wrong. It's just what I'm comfortable with. Uh, but I do. I write uh, from start to finish, and I never go back and look at uh, what I what I put down the day before. Uh, I make certain that I get it down on paper, and then when the rewriting process begins, which can be the, the longest process of, of the of the entire project, then you go back and, and take a look and see what's working in the flow and the transition, see what's working, what's not. We're joined by Mike Rich. He's a Hollywood screenwriter. He's brought you Finding Forrester, The Rookie, Radio, and now Secretariat, which opens on October 8th in theaters everywhere. Mike, when you write a screenplay, I imagine now that you're more established, you've got deals with studios. But for people just getting into the business, they're probably writing it and then hoping to sell it to a studio. How does it work for someone like yourself now? Well, it's, it's, it's really difficult to break in, and everybody has their own story. For me, the breakthrough came because of the, uh, the Nickel Fellowship competition, which all of a sudden opened some doors for me. Uh, but, the, but the nice thing now is that uh, if, if I have a thought or I have a concept or something comes into my mind that I think might be of interest to a particular studio, I can go in and pitch that idea. Uh, instead of writing a, 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 a huge treatment or an even larger screenplay, uh, I can go in and spend about 20 minutes uh, and pitch them the idea. Uh, and just, you know, it's sometimes sometimes they go for it, sometimes they don't. But uh, it's, it's much more uh, economical from a time standpoint, and uh, uh, it, 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 it allows me to really pursue a lot more ideas that I might otherwise not be able to do and find out very, very quickly if it's something the studio's interested in. Yeah, your movies tend to be feel-good movies. They have a positive message. We can all take our families to see them. It's also apparent that you like integrating sports into your screenplays. What other characteristics are you looking for when you're, you know, now when you're done with Secretariat and you're going, what's my next project going to be? How do you figure that out? You know, there's no, I don't have a set answer for that, Brian, because it, it, the projects are all kind of different. But the one thing that I think they all do have is really compelling characters. Uh, part of the, 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 one of the obstacles that I've often been saddled with uh, in some of these projects is people by and large know how the film ends. Uh, and, and Secretariat's no exception. Most people know that Secretariat won the Triple Crown back in 1973. But hopefully and ideally, uh, the script has created a, a character, in this case Penny Chenery, the woman who owns Secretariat, who is compelling enough that the audience really just at that point doesn't care that they know how uh, you know the, the, the story ends. And in fact, at that point it becomes an advantage because they're looking forward to experiencing that moment with the lead character. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, there's never been a movie done on Secretariat who most people consider to be the greatest horse of all time. Why is that, and how were you able to convince Disney that, hey, we need to do a movie about Secretariat? You know, it was actually easier to convince Disney than it was con to convince Penny Chenery. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and I think that's part of the reason. Uh, you know, Secretariat won the Triple Crown back in 1973, and Penny Chenery has been extraordinarily protective of the horse's legacy. He passed away uh, when he was 19 years old and is buried in Kentucky. And, and to this day, 
I went back there and people show up every day, total strangers, to put flowers on his grave. That's how much this horse meant to a lot of people back in the early 70s. So Penny Chattery wasn't going to give up those rights too easily. And, and to me, it was one of the great moments uh, in my screenwriting career was getting that phone call that she had agreed uh, to to let me take a, a swing at the script. And by that point, Disney was excited about it as well. So it was uh, it was Penny Chattery's seal of approval that really got the uh, project moving forward. So I assume you met with her personally to have this conversation and ask for her involvement or her blessing. What happened at that meeting? Yeah, it was uh, it was back. She lives in Boulder, Colorado now. She's in her late 80s. And uh, uh, it was a fascinating few days uh, in which, you know, we just... Uh, uh, the research part of it, to me, Brian, is just always... Uh, the most rewarding and challenging and, and a lot of things. Um, but, uh, you know, to me, it was just finding out how difficult it was for her on a personal level to pursue this dream of her ailing father uh, at the expense of being with her family. And that was the, that's, that's the balancing act that really drives the uh, story forward in the movie was, uh, you know, her sacrifice, which was a, which was a big sacrifice in, 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 in the pursuit of really finding out who she was and what, she, uh, what her destiny was in her own life. So were you able to go to her during the project? And, you know, again, as you mentioned a few minutes ago, this actually took place. So I imagine you want to be as accurate as possible. Were you able to consult with her during the movie to make sure that everything was as accurate as possible? Sure. And, and you know, you, you take creative liberties with, with every feature film, and this was no exception. You want to keep those to a minimum, and typically the creative liberties are not so much wholesale changes to fact, because you can't do that. You know, you'll, you'll get busted on that. But what you'll do is sometimes you'll consolidate time and, and put individuals in places that they may or may not have actually been in to help facilitate the flow of the story. Um, but yeah, it's. Let me tell you, when I finished that script, uh, you know, I handed it into the producers, I handed it into Disney, and I handed it into Penny Chenery, and. Uh, and she was the last one to get back to me. And, and I remember the night very well when she did get back to me and, and, and said how much she enjoyed the script and really had very, very few comments, which, uh, which was really gratifying. How old is she now? You know, Penny now, I believe, is 87 or 88. Uh, and she actually has a nice little cameo in the film, uh, which... Uh, uh, she was really thrilled to do. It was uh, I, I took a great deal of satisfaction because uh, seeing her that day on the uh, on the set because uh, she wanted to she wanted not only to, to help kind of oversee this project but to be part of it as well. What about the setting? Do you go to the actual venues? Are you going to Churchill Downs or do you go to venues that are a little bit more convenient to get to for the casting crew? Well, we filmed uh, in two locations uh, for Secretariat. We filmed uh, a good chunk of the film in Louisiana, uh, and then we filmed uh, the remainder of the film in Kentucky. Uh, so, uh, you know, the, the stuff that you see in the film, 
at Churchill Downs for the Kentucky Derby is actually at Churchill Downs, and and uh, a lot of the uh, horse farms that you see in the early part of the film obviously are in in the uh, in the bluegrass area. We're joined by Hollywood screenwriter Mike Rich. He's written Secretariat. It opens in theaters everywhere on October 8th. Mike, let's go back to your job for a moment. When the movie is taking place and they're shooting it, um, how much say do you have in the casting that goes on? This is an incredible cast in this movie. Diane Lane, John Malkovich. You've worked with some extraordinary actors before Sean Connery. Do you get a little say in, in who gets cast? Yeah, I get a little say. Uh, I'm an executive producer on this film as well, so um, you know my input was was uh, uh, was valued. Uh, but I have to give all the credit to Randy Wallace, the director of the film. Uh, Randy just did such an exceptional job of bringing this cast together, and uh, it was it was Randy's um, it was Randy's direction and vision for this uh, cast that. Uh, that really made it click. More of my conversation with Hollywood screenwriter Mike Rich coming up next. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. Stay in the know at sportsbusinessradio.com. Podcasts, blogs, and more. SBR will be right back. Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. Every championship team has one thing in common, good coaching. And I want to be your coach, your media coach. When I'm not hosting Sports Business Radio, I team with former Nike PR director Lee Weinstein to form New School Media Coaching. New School Media Coaching uses a fresh and interactive approach for educating our clients about dealing with today's media landscape. Whether you're an athlete, a coach, or a front office executive in the sports or business world, We'll prepare you for communications with the masses in today's social media world where everything is on the record. And just like any good coach, we'll help you practice your new skills and we'll be there to provide constructive feedback every step of the way. With a combined 40 years of experience, we're veteran coaches, but we use a new school approach. For an overview and a list of our services, visit newschoolmediacoaching.wordpress.com or email me at brian at sportsbusinessradio.com. The website is sportsbusinessradio.com. Now back to my conversation with Hollywood screenwriter Mike Rich. So when the movie's being shot, do they ever come back to you and ask for rewrites? And if so, how does that process work? Sometimes. Uh, and, and usually you want to keep that to a minimum, especially during production, because during production, each day is an expensive day. And uh, if you have to stop production uh, to to work on a scene or to write a scene, uh, then that's then that's a problem. Uh, you know, with Secretariat, we didn't have to do that uh, because we all felt the script was in terrific shape and, and uh, we just shot the script the, the way it was, the shooting script that was, uh, that was uh, put together. But, uh, um, you know, every once in a while on some other projects, uh, yeah, you, uh, you realize something that looked good on page isn't quite working and 
so you're on you're on the clock and you have to kick that out really really quickly um, before you can uh, uh, so that you can move on to the next day you talk about every day being an expensive day I've always wondered this can you give me some sort of a ballpark as to how expensive it is to put on a movie like this on a day-to-day basis is it tens of thousands of dollars are we talking a hundred thousand dollars what are we talking you know, it depends on 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 the movie, but uh, you know, it's it's probably a safe bet that you know the average film uh, feature release mid budget uh, uh, film probably is a hundred to one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a day. Wow! Uh, and uh, you know, that's excluding uh, a lot of the uh, already contracts for performers etc that's just the the operation itself and the crew and uh, and getting everything done so that gives you a, a clear example why it's it's really imperative to make each day uh, each day count I imagine when you're filming a movie there's always something unexpected that arises in any of the movies that you've worked on do you have a, a funny story for something that might have uh, arisen out of the blue that was unexpected well, you know, I'll give you a couple of things. The, the the Rookie was an example of a film where we shot all of the Rookie in Austin, Texas. And Austin, Texas usually is just money in the bank for weather. And uh, I, I remember for the first three weeks, we couldn't buy a dry day. Could not buy a dry day. It just poured and uh. poured. And so we used what we call cover sets. And, and, and cover scenes are scenes that in the event of rain you shoot these scenes instead of the exterior scenes and so they're usually almost always interior scenes and we blew out our our, our cover scenes we shot everything <laughs> that was set. so we didn't we, we, we basically needed the weather to turn and and the frustrating thing was I remember and this was mid-spring when we shot this I kept looking I was in Austin Texas pouring kept looking at the forecast in Portland which was we went on this two or three week dry streak oh, in Portland, which never uh, happens. Which never happens in the springtime, <laughs> and so the irony was not lost on me that if we had shot it back in uh, in Portland, we would have been in good shape. That's funny. Um, you know, movies have changed so much. Now you're looking at not only what you're doing in the theater, but you're looking at the release on Blu-ray and DVD and Netflix and things like that. And you see um, that there's special features with the people involved in the movie. So when you're shooting a movie now, how much attention do you have to pay to, I guess, the post-theater aspects of the movie? Well, it's it's a big part of it. Uh, in, in a lot of ways, the theatrical release now is a loss leader for what happens afterwards, and uh, and it changes all the time. It wasn't that many years ago when all we were talking about was a video and a laser disc release. Uh, <laughs> laser and, disc, and, it, <laughs> and, and then it became a, a, a DVD, and now it's Blu-ray. And of course, you know, within just a few years here, we're going to be looking at everything being, you know. 1080p resolution on demand. Uh, however, you pro- you know whether it be Comcast, Directv, Dish, or whatever, that's how you're going to get uh, uh, you know your 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 films. And so, uh, you know, things the, the landscape has just changed so dramatically. And yes, uh, a lot of the time that you're on set is uh, either doing little vignettes or featurettes or whatever that uh, hopefully can be used as 
added material once the uh, the home release is issued. Just a few minutes left with Mike Rich, Hollywood screenwriter. He's done Secretariat. It opens nationwide October 8th. Do you go to screenings? Do you go slip into the theater with your wife? And, and if you do, is that a nerve-wracking process, a proud process? What is that like for you? Yeah, it's both. Uh, and yes, I do. <laughs> it's, um, you know, after you've seen the film a couple, three times with an audience, you you, you get a feel for what they're going to respond to. And, and uh, it's interesting for the most part. Uh, you know, audiences are pretty consistent in how they react, and and uh, there's always a line that I wrote in the script that I didn't anticipate would get rea- get a reaction, and it does. And then there's a line that I was sure was going to get a reaction, and it doesn't. Hmm. Uh, and so it's yeah, I, I love it's one of the great benefits of of what I do from from a writing standpoint is I, I really get to see how people. React. I get to see it firsthand. It's not so much, uh, you know, someone coming up to me and saying that they that they really loved, you know, this this particular scene. I, I can actually go there and, and and watch it happen, which is great. I went to college in Los Angeles, and one of my favorite things to do, the studios would come to our campus all the time at Loyola Marymount, and they'd hand out passes. Hey, go make 25 bucks. Come watch the screening of this movie. So we'd watch the screening of the movie. Then we'd fill out a questionnaire afterwards. And sometimes, in a rare occasion, they'd go back and change the ending of the movie based on the screen test. Does that ever happen in, in movies today, or is that just, you know, that was 20 years ago when I was in college. No, that's the nerve-wracking part of it because it, it does still happen. And what happens is, uh, you know, you have uh, the, the test screening and everybody, the 400 people or so that are in the theater, get a questionnaire and they fill that out. But then they handpick about 20 individuals, and it's 10 men and it's 10 women. And, you know, five of those women are under the age of 25, five of them are over, same with the men, so it's a demographic split. And... Uh, and then they have a moderator who begins a Q&A focus group. And all of the filmmakers sit about five or six rows back, and the golden rule is you can't say anything. That's got to be hard. <laughs> and it's hard because you, you hear responses that, uh, you know, can sometimes lead to a change in a scene that uh, that you felt strongly about, but... Uh, and sometimes they'll they'll defend it. I, I remember uh, with Finding Forrester, there was uh, there were some individuals at the very end of Finding Forrester. They didn't want that story to continue on with the with the epilogue in which we learn of William Forrester's death, uh, and they they felt that that it was better to be served uh, just to see the Sean Connery's character kind of riding his bicycle off into the sunset. And it was, they posed that question to the focus group, and I, I, I know as sure as I'm sitting here that if the focus group would have said, no, 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 you're right, we should just stop it right then and there, that that's how it would have ended up. But the focus group said, no, of course not. The, the, what you need to do is you need to let it play just the way it is. And because of that, I think that's how the, the, the movie ended up the way that it did. Kind of an off-topic question. There's been so much publicity about the ending of The Sopranos, the ending of Lost, which was one of my favorite TV shows, that they kind of left things to the audience's uh, discretion, to you know our own opinions on how it ended. Do you find that people want an ending that's very concrete to a story, or do they not mind if you leave it open to their interpretation? 
I think some people do, uh, and uh, I, I personally love it when you leave it up to the audience to determine in their own mind uh, what happened. Because you know, I, I've said before that if I uh, if if I put a movie out and and four people go and see it and they head home that night and they have a conversation afterwards and all four of them disagree on on how they perceived uh, the ending or a key moment, then I've done my job because uh, I, I, I love that ambiguity. Uh, too often I think the, uh, that we do try and, and spoon feed the audience and, and tell them exactly how they should feel or, or what they should, you know, what opinion they should have on a film and, and I think that's a real mistake. Last question for you. This has obviously been a big project, Secretariat. What's on the horizon for you? What's next? Boy, I'll tell you, you know, it's, uh, I, I, I don't have anything definitive right now. Um, there, there are a number of, there, I have a couple of projects at Universal which are in development, uh, hoping they come together. Uh, and and, and, uh, and there's, there's, a, there's an idea of a big kind of sweeping young adult um, uh, story that's been kicking around in my head for some time, and I'm, I, I may use this particular moment to uh, to try and really put that one together, put it before a studio, and, and see if it happens. Mike, I think you're one of the best in the business at what you do. Uh, best of luck with the release of Secretariat on October 8th in theaters nationwide, and uh, thanks for joining us on Sports Business Radio. No problem, Brian. Always a pleasure. Thank you very much. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Stay in touch with SBR on Twitter. Twitter.com slash SB Radio. Sports Business Radio talks to the people who call the shots in the world of sports. Brian Berger goes one-on-one with the biggest names. My guest is NBA Commissioner David Stern. I thought you did a wonderful job of handling the game ball situation. You listened to your players and the owners, and ultimately I thought you got it right. What did you learn from that experience? It probably pays to go the extra step to build a consensus, even though you don't think there's any other view that makes sense. My guest is Jack Nicholas. What are the main lessons the game of golf can teach us if we pay close enough attention? You develop relationships with people. I think you play 18 holes of golf with somebody. You get to know them pretty well. We're joined by Bill Hancock. He's the executive director of the BCS. What we want is for the best two teams to play in the championship game. Beyond that, I'm not sure it's really fair to say what's good for the BCS or what or what's bad for the BCS. Follow us at sportsbusinessradio.com and on Twitter at SB Radio. This is Sports Business Radio. Well, we all know that golf can be an expensive game. Companies like Nike, TaylorMade, Titleist spend millions of dollars trying to get you to put their clubs in your bag every year. But the putter that netted Jim Furyk an $11.35 million payday last Sunday at the Tour Championship cost him 
a whopping $39 at a discount shop near Boston. Furek picked up the used Yes Sophia, my daughter's name, putter, at Joe and Lee's discount golf shop in Pine Oaks in Easton, Massachusetts. So Griggs basically... He must not have liked the putter that he was using before, which I think is an Odyssey putter. Odyssey's pretty good putter. But he goes to this thrift store, $39, makes a two-foot par putt that clinched the $1.35 million Tour Championship, and then the $10 million for winning the FedEx Cup. Pretty good return on investment, and Furyk's going to be using that same putter in Wales at the Ryder Cup this weekend. That'll be interesting to see if he can uh, you know, have the same success with it because you never know. I mean, it could be it could be the putter of his lifetime that he loves forever or it might have just been a one-time thing. It's kind of like Linus with his blanket. You know, if you like a club, you're going to stick with that club and we'll see how long Jim Furyk sticks with his $39 putter. Great story there. Lots of thank yous on the show. Mike Rich, he is the screenwriter for Secretariat. It's in theaters on October 8th. Terrific movie. Great cast. Diane Lane, John Malkovich. Really good movie from Disney. And I uh, hope you enjoyed our conversation with Mike Ridge. Really took us inside of movie making. If you want to share with your friends, go to sportsbusinessradio.com. You can find that conversation via podcast. I want to thank our show staff, Brian Griggs, Josh Blank, Darren Peck, Ron Barr, James Harris, and Doug Zanger. Our sponsors, the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon and New School Media Coaching. A podcast reminder, you can catch our show on demand via podcast every week. Just go to sportsbusinessradio.com, click on the podcast page. You can also find the link to iTunes. Our podcast there are very popular. Follow us on Twitter. I'm at SB Radio. We're on Facebook, too. That link also on the homepage of sportsbusinessradio.com. For Brian Griggs, I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you next weekend right here on Sports Business Radio. Hi, this is Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. It's no secret that we're battling a tough economy these days. It's more difficult than ever for companies to position their brand in a unique way and reach their target audience. Sports Business Radio can help you, though. Sports Business Radio is syndicated in markets nationwide. Our popular podcast is regularly rated in the top 100 business news podcasts on iTunes and has listeners around the world. But our radio network and podcast aren't the only places your company will receive exposure when you join our family of sponsors. We'll also give you exposure via sportsbusinessradio.com and at our new Sports Executive Speaker Series events, which feature a conversation with a key decision maker from the world of sports in front of a live audience. And best of all, we can expose your product to the big-name guests that appear on our show. We'd love to have you on our team. Please contact me at brian at sportsbusinessradio.com or at 503-701-2215 if you're interested in becoming a sponsor of Sports Business Radio.